be seated. Amen. Well, it's an exciting morning as we uh, gather here on uh, Palm Sunday to begin our celebration of Holy Week, and uh, we're so glad you're here. I like the story about uh, the Palm Sunday when a little five-year-old Johnny stayed home from church uh, with a cold, and his mother stayed home with him. And uh, when the family returned back, they were carrying uh, large palm branches. And uh, Johnny asked him what they were for, and his dad said, uh, people held him over Jesus' head as he walked by. Johnny shook his head and said, wouldn't you know it, the one Sunday I don't uh, show up, Jesus is there. <laughs> well, Jesus shows up every week, doesn't he? And he's here this morning with us, and uh, he's watching us. Um, he's listening to us as we sing praises to him, and um, he's reading our hearts and our minds here this morning as well. And we're gathered here in his presence to honor him, and, and we're glad you're here with us this morning. If you're visiting this morning, uh, thank you for coming to uh, share this Palm Sunday with us. Uh, we're staying in our current study of uh, 1 Peter this morning. Sometimes uh, for Palm Sunday, we'll leave our normal text and, and have some passage in the Gospels, but our text this morning is a perfect text as uh, we launch into Holy Week. It's a, a perfect segue, really, to Good Friday. So if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 21 to 25. Uh, we've been in this series in 1 Peter. Uh, we've titled this series, Still Standing. And again, this uh, text this morning, we couldn't find a more uh, perfect text to set our hearts and minds for this week. So I've titled this morning's message, uh, Cross Purposes. Let me read these verses for us. First uh, Peter, uh, beginning in chapter uh, 2 and verse 21. For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls." So reads God's inspired word. Let's bow our heads this morning for a prayer as we open God's word together. Our fathers, we enter into this season when our minds in a special way are fixed on that once for all sacrifice of Jesus and his glorious resurrection from the dead. I pray that you would increase and intensify our affections for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, stir our souls. We pray that you would draw near to us this morning as we draw near to you. You'd bless the preaching of your word this morning. Exalt the name of your son in our midst. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, these verses I've just read here this morning address one of the most important questions really that we, anyone could ask or consider, and that is why did Jesus die on the cross? Now, what's the purpose or what are the purposes of the death of Jesus on the cross? Why did he die? Now, if we were to go and look through Scripture this morning, we could find many purposes for the death of Christ given in Scripture, but this text this morning highlights three of them, and you can see uh, those three purposes in your outline there this morning. We're going to see that Christ died to be our standard or to be, uh, to be our example to follow when we suffer unjustly. Uh, we also see that Christ is our sin bearer or our substitute, and then finally we see that Christ is our shepherd. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time on the first two points I hear this morning as we go through this outline. So the first purpose of the cross of Jesus that's set forth in this passage is that Jesus is our standard. 
Now, we ended in verse 21 last time in our study, and I don't want to go into that in great detail again, but I do want to remind you when he says in verse 21, for you've been called for this purpose, the preceding context is slaves who were being unjustly treated uh, by their masters. And in fact, the, the whole context of the book of 1 Peter is believers who are suffering unjustly for being Christians. Uh, they weren't being beaten, they weren't being killed or martyred for their faith. They were suffering what we call today kind of soft persecution, being maligned and mocked and, and mistreated for their faith, kind of like what we see in our country today. So he's saying, look, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. In other words, if we're followers of Jesus, we should expect to get the same treatment Jesus received. But then he says at the end of the verse, leaving an example for you to follow. When we said that word example is the Greek word hupogramon that means to write under. And we said that this was a word used in the elementary schools of that day where the letters of the alphabet were written on a page or some document and then a page was placed on top of that where the student would trace those perfect letters to learn how to write the alphabet. And so what we said last time is, is to, to write under means the life of Jesus is written under our life. His life is the perfect model or pattern or template, and we place our life on top of his life, and we trace his perfect life as we walk in his footsteps. And he says here, leaving us an example for us to follow in his steps, to follow in his footprints or in his tracks. Uh, some of you may know the name Charles Sheldon. He was a Kansas newspaperman, and he wrote a novel back in 1896 titled, In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? And it describes a year in the life of an American city where everyone in the city made this question the basis for every one of their decisions. What would Jesus do? And that book, In His Steps, it's a well-known book. I remember reading part of it when I was a boy. It became an instant bestseller. And that was really the, the basis some years ago for the bracelets, you know, the WWJD, the what would Jesus do? And Peter is telling us here that, that part of the death of Jesus was to provide an example or a standard for us to follow in his steps, to ask when we suffer unjustly, what would Jesus do? We follow in his steps when we follow, when, when we suffer unjustly as Jesus suffered unjustly. So again, that's the context here in the book of 1 Peter. So as these readers suffered unjustly, Peter wanted them to look at how Jesus responded to his suffering and to use that as their standard or their example. Now for all of us here this morning, and I can say this without uh, any condition, our instinctive, natural response when we're abused or mistreated or unfairly treated is to get even. And it can be something as simple as someone cutting us off in traffic, or it can be something as major as uh, someone uh, doing us terribly wrong in life and maybe abusing someone as a child or, or all kinds of things like that. So it can be something simple, something big. Our tendency in life is to want to revenge, to get revenge, to balance out uh, the, the, the balance sheet, if you will, to, to take revenge. And revenge can taste sweet. Um, I was reading a book uh, a couple weeks ago by David Jeremiah. It's his new book called Overcomer. And in the book, he says this. He says, Pastor Charles Swindoll tells about a preacher who refused to take revenge. He once said to a person who heard him, I'm not going to get even, but I'm going to tell God on you. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I'm going to tell God on you, let God get you, which is kind of interestingly what this passage says today. 
But he says, fortunately, we don't have to tell God anything. He knows and sees everything, including every act of evil. And he tells us that he will balance the scales one day. Then David Jeremiah says this, many people are not willing to wait for that day. They'll go to any length to balance the scales on their own. For example, he says, Nick Stafford of Cedar Bluff, Virginia, was upset with the county Department of Motor Vehicle Office because they wouldn't give him access to their direct phone lines. So when it came time to pay the taxes on two cars he purchased, he brought to their office five wheelbarrows loaded with 300,000 pennies to cover the assessment. His rationale was, if they're going to inconvenience me, then I'm going to inconvenience them. Now think of the inconvenience he went to to inconvenience them, right? But he wanted to get his revenge. But I love this story uh, David Jeremiah tells. He says, similarly, in a 1991 baseball game between the Chicago Cubs and Cincinnati Reds, Cubs outfielder Andre Dawson objected strenuously to a called strike by umpire Joe West. In the heated dispute that followed, Dawson bumped West. He claimed it was accidental, but he was ejected from the game and fined $1,000. But Dawson got his revenge by making it publicly known that on the memo line of the check he sent in to pay the fine, he wrote the words, donation for the blind. (laughs) We all like to get back, even at refs, right, or the officials. We were watching the game. I mean, uh, you want somehow to get our revenge. We all want that. But the problem is when we seek revenge, we're usurping the role of God. And we're basically saying, God can't take care of this, so I have to take his role and take care of it myself. What did the Apostle Paul say in Romans 12? He said, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Think of how court categorical that is. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And as I heard a preacher say years ago, if you get your own vengeance, though, you're going to rob God from doing that, and God will do a lot better job of it than you will. But you think about this, that the cross of Christ was the worst injustice in all of human history. But but Peter lists here for us four things that Jesus did not do when he was suffering that you and I are to emulate. And we're going to see here in these verses, in fact, you can probably see it in your translation there, there are extensive allusions here back to Isaiah 53, uh, back to that uh, song of the suffering servant in the Old Testament, that great chapter, Isaiah 53. And he's going to tell us four things that Jesus didn't do that we're also not to do when we suffer unjust treatment. Notice the first thing, who committed no sin. Jesus, when he suffered unjustly, committed no sin. Uh, Jesus was totally innocent. There was not one instance of it. In fact, we could say in Jesus' life, there was no sin before the mistreatment, no sin during the mistreatment, and no sin after it. You uh, read uh, chapter 1, verse 19 of this book that says Jesus is a spotless, unblemished lamb. No sin during his suffering. 1 Corinthians 5, 21 says about Jesus, he knew no sin. 1 John 3, 5 says, in him there is no sin. Now think about this. This is the apostle Peter who lived with Jesus 24-7 for three years. And he says about Jesus, he committed no sin. And this is a man who knew him better than anyone. One writer says it like this, Peter lived with Jesus all day for three years. If Jesus had grabbed tasty morsels of fish for himself or exploded in frustrated anger at his thick-headed disciples, Peter would have known. 
But Peter never saw Jesus stray in word or in deed. He never got upset unjustly, never made a bad decision, never got a laugh at another person's expense. His proper self-interest was never tainted by selfishness. He never sinned. You think about us, I mean, if you lived with me or I lived with you for a week or maybe over the weekend or probably just for a day or sometimes just for an hour, we would see a person who's a sinner in word and in deed. And Peter here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says he committed no sin. Peter knew that Jesus was without sin, and in, in that way he fulfilled this prophecy of the suffering servant in the Old Testament. Notice it says no deceit was found in his mouth. He, he was sinless in the realm of his speech. And I think that's often the easiest area for us to sin in because uh, the tongue is just simply the tattletale of the heart, dredges up what's down inside and uh, brings it forth. And then it says, while reviling, he gave no reviling in return. The word means to be insulted. Jesus was mocked and insulted and he didn't respond in kind. Isaiah 53, 7 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Now, this was written, by the way, 700 years before Christ came. It's a prophecy of him. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. He did not open his mouth. Think about Jesus was struck in the face, crowned with thorns. Um, he was beaten with a reed. He was forced to bear his own cross. He was crucified. He was mocked and insulted uh, by those around him. Now, what we love to do is trade insult for insult. If you're going to insult or revile me, I'm going to insult you back. But what we have here is what uh, one preacher I read called the silence of the lamb. Uh, the Lord Jesus. Now, it's not that Jesus, during all this, never said anything. Um, he made a few statements. In fact, uh, Friday night or in Good Friday, when we have our service here at 7 o'clock, we'll look at the first of the seven statements Jesus made from the cross. So he did say some things, but he never protested. He never justified himself. There was no uh, self-defense. He was a silent lamb led uh, to the slaughter. He didn't trade insult for insult and barb for barb as we do. And then it says there was no threatening there was no threatening by Jesus. He didn't revile in return. He uttered no threats while suffering. He offered no threats of immediate revenge and no threats of future revenge. Think about Jesus could have said, you guys just wait till I re am resurrected in three days. I mean, you think of the threats Jesus could have uttered. Now I'm going to come back and get you. And as I, we read this here, does that look like us? Whenever we're threatened and mistreated and reviled and mocked or insulted in life, he's saying, don't lash out or threaten. You know, to me, one of the most interesting things about the life of Jesus, certainly the miracles Jesus did, we have uh, 35 of them recorded in the Gospels of the, the miracles Jesus did. They're amazing. But think about this, just as amazing are the miracles that Jesus didn't do. I mean, he could have called uh, 12 uh, legions of angels to come forth, the Bible tells us, to rescue him there from the cross. I mean, he could have you know, fried everyone who was there who was doing these things to him. So just as incredible as the miracles he did are the miracles he restrained himself uh, from doing. And again, we need to ask ourselves when uh, we're mistreated, when we're reviled, do we respond this way? And again, someone may be coming to your mind this morning that you've been nursing sweet revenge against. 
Is this the way we respond? He moves then from the, po- the negative to the positive. There's, there's the, all these negatives, but there's only one positive. Notice verse 23, but, notice the contrast, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now that, that term there, keep, uh, kept entrusting, means he kept doing it over and over again. And that word means to hand over or to deliver. And it's an interesting word because this is the word that's used extensively in the Gospels of people handing Jesus over. Jesus was, uh, uh, Judas uh, handed Jesus over to the Jewish officials. It's the same Greek word. Then the Jewish leaders handed Jesus over to Pilate. And then Pilate took Jesus and handed him over to the soldiers. But the whole time, Jesus was handing himself over Uh, to God. He was entrusting himself to God. He counted on God's character and trusted God for ultimate justice and vindication. And that ultimately, you could say in this passage, is the secret of Christ's likeness. That's the hidden resource we have as believers. It's trusting God when someone does us wrong and hurts us deeply. We can put the matter in God's hands. And you could say here that we're to keep putting ourselves in God's hands and keep handing the situation over to him. That's what it looks like to trace the footsteps of Jesus. So if there's someone that you'd like to get back at, uh, someone you'd like to taste sweet revenge against, uh, maybe it's uh, an ex-employer, maybe it's an ex-spouse, maybe it's uh, someone who bullied you mercilessly earlier in life, Uh, Maybe it's a parent who abused you when you were younger. Whoever it is, what he says is every time the thought comes into your mind to seek revenge and retaliation, just keep handing it over to God. Keep handing it over to him and plead your cause with him. You and I are to trace the footsteps of Jesus. I like the story about the mother who was making pancakes for her sons and the boys, these two boys were fighting over who was gonna get the first pancake and the mother realized this was a great opportunity to teach a lesson. So she said, if Jesus were sitting here, I think he would say, let my brother have the first pancake, I can wait. She said, would you all agree that that's what he would say? And the boy shook their head and said, yeah, we, we agree, that's what Jesus would say. So then the older boy turned to his younger brother and said, you be Jesus. <laughs> That's what we like to say to other people, right? When there's a trouble, man, you be Jesus, right? I mean, you be the one to take it. But as I read that story this week and thought about this passage, I thought, you know, we need to start saying to ourselves and pointing to ourselves and saying, you be Jesus. You be Jesus when we're treated unjustly in this life. Look, you and I need to quit carrying around the idea of getting revenge or retaliating against somebody. Again, if there's someone that comes to your mind, it may be something just happened this week or a couple of weeks ago. You may have been carrying it around for years. I was watching uh, the news this week, and they talked about a a man in Japan, and he was not allowed to attend a certain university. His admissions was turned down. And I think it was for 14 years, every night between 2 and 4 a.m., he calls a particular office there and just has all kinds of vicious language against them for what they've done to them. Think about that, 14 years, you're waking up in the middle of the night uh, to make this call, but yet he can't get this off of his mind. He's gonna get his revenge and his retaliation. 
And again, what we do may not be that severe, but there's someone or somebody who's wronged us in life that all of us have this idea of retaliating, seeking revenge, and striking back. But what the Lord tells us today is don't do that. What you need to do is just keep handing it over to Him. And every time it comes to mind, just hand it over. Just keep doing that over and over again. Keep entrusting uh, yourself to the one who judges righteously. Now, Peter's main point in this context here, in this passage, is for us to follow the example of Christ in patiently enduring unfair treatment. That's his main point. But he can't talk about the death of Christ and just leave it at that. Because Peter knows that Jesus was more than just a model when he died on the cross for us. He was a mediator for us. So that brings us to this second and central purpose of Christ's death on the cross. He died as our sin bearer or our substitute. And this is central here because that's what's emphasized in Isaiah 53, really in the rest of the New Testament. This is the heart of the gospel that Jesus died as the sinner's substitute. He bore our sins. And that that word bore means he carried up our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus carried the massive weight of human sin. And that weight is so heavy that Romans 8.22 says the whole creation groans and suffers under it. And Jesus bore the penalty for our sins. That's what it means when it says he bore our sins. He bore the penalty of them. And when it says he bore our sins, he bore ours because he didn't have any sins of his own to pay for. That's why he could be our substitute. Because he had no sins of his own to pay for. He could die for our sins. He's the sinless one. And all of this here speaks of substitution, that Jesus died in our place. He carried the massive weight of human sin when he died on the cross. The full sum of the the, uh, sin debt of the human race was laid on Jesus, and he bore it all. And Christ's death for us includes our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins, because when he died on the cross, they were all future Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 10, says that he was a guilt offering for us. Isaiah 53, 11 says, He will bear their iniquities. Uh, John W. Stott, John R. W. Stott, has a great book called The Cross of Christ. If you've never read it, it's a tremendous book to read. But he says that that substitution is at the heart of both sin and salvation. Because he says when you think of human sin, there's a substitution. It's man substituting himself for God. When you come to salvation, there's also a substitution, but it's God substituting himself for man. So the nature of human sin is we substitute ourselves for God. But the nature of salvation is God substitutes himself for man. Salvation is at, or substitution is at the heart of uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, many of you know the name Charles Spurgeon. I quote Charles Spurgeon often. A lot of preachers do. He was uh, uh, the prince of preachers. He was known as he died. I think it was 1892. Uh, preached during the Victorian era. His sermons went all over the world. And if you were to summarize the theology of Spurgeon and why God used him so greatly, his theology was the person of Jesus Christ and his cross. And two years before he died, Spurgeon said this to a group of pastors, I personally don't have a shadow of a hope of salvation from any other means. I am lost if Jesus is not my substitute. 
I've been driven into a corner by a pressing sense of my own sin. I must have a perfect and divine righteousness, yet it's beyond my own power to create it. I find it in Christ. He's our substitute. And then Spurgeon, nearing the end of his life, in fact, these are the last words of the great Charles Spurgeon. Someone asked him how he was doing. And he said, tranquil and happy, though very weak. My theology is very simple. I can express it in a few words, and they're enough to die by. And after a pause, he slowly said, Jesus died for me. Those are the last words he spoke. Now, those would be the greatest last words that could ever be on the lips of a human being. Jesus died for me. And those are words to live by, and those are words to die by, because that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says he bore our sins in his body. And again, that's a reminder of the incarnation, that Jesus was God, but he's a man. He's the God-man. He bore our sins in his body. And it says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. It's not the normal word in the New Testament used for the cross. Literally, he bore our sins in his body on the wood or on the tree. And I think Peter mentions that here or says that here because the Jews didn't crucify people who were to suffer uh, capital punishment. Uh, the Jews didn't crucify. They stoned people to death. But if you'll go back to Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23, you can see there, if a person was especially evil, after they were stoned to death, they took the body of that person and they hung it on a tree for everybody to see it. And it was an act of, of shame and humiliation. And it was uh, uh, showing that that person was under a, a curse their corpse being suspended or, or hung on wood or from a tree. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The curse of the law is that when you break it, you have to suffer its punishment. It tells us here that Jesus became a curse for us. He bore the curse for us because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, Jesus' death dealt with the penalty of our sins, but you'll notice here in verse 24, he also dealt with the power of sin over us in our daily lives. Notice he died not just to take away our sins and to deal with the power of sin or the, the penalty of it, but the power of it. It's so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. A great purpose of the cross is not just to take away our sins, but that we can die to sin in our daily lives and live a life that's pleasing to God. The idea of dying to sin means to be separated from it or to leave it behind. In other words, the cross deals with the power of sin, that ruling, dominating power of sin in our lives. So you and I don't have to be dominated necessarily by the, the tyranny of sin in our lives any longer if we're believers. We're to consider ourselves dead to sin, separated from it, but alive to God. So Christ's death and his resurrection not only change our standing before God, but they give us a new nature. It's like that uh, song we sing here at church I love so much. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been removed from the necessary dominating power of sin in our lives. The tyranny of sin has been broken, and we can live to, for righteousness. We can live righteous lives. And that's the power of the resurrection manifested in, in our lives every day. So Christ has saved us to live for him. In other words, he died for us 
so that now we can live for him in our daily lives. But then at the end of this verse, verse 24, Peter alludes back to Isaiah 53 again. For by his wounds you were healed. Now, I think the old King James says, by his stripes you were healed. Or some translations say, by his scourging uh, you were healed. In fact, uh, the verse says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening of our well-being was upon him. And by his wounds, or by his wound, we were healed. Now, the Hebrew there, it's fascinating, is in the singular. And most people miss that. You could translate it like this, by his wound, not his wounds, but his wound, you were healed. It looks at all of the suffering of Jesus, the beatings, the mocking, the being crowned with thorns, the crucifixion, all of that as one big wound. It pictures all of the suffering of Jesus as one gigantic gaping wound. And you think about that, Peter saw it. Now, of course, Peter deserted Jesus with all the other apostles other than John, but he saw a lot of of what happened. He was an eyewitness and had a a front row seat to all this. And he says, by his wound, you and I have been healed. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but this verse is used by, it's kind of a, a proof text for a lot of charismatics and faith healers that there's healing in the atonement. We'll often say, you know, by his stripes, you know, we were healed, that through the death of Jesus Christ, we're guaranteed physical healing if we'll simply receive it. Now, there's several problems with that, and certainly we believe that God today is a healer and that if we call out to him, sometimes he chooses to heal us. But we don't believe there's a guaranteed right in this life to physical healing in the atonement. Now, I do believe there's physical healing in the atonement in that someday we're going to get a new body. So ultimately, there is healing for these bodies in the atonement of Christ. But there's not a guaranteed physical healing now. And we know that because uh, the context of Isaiah 53 is not sickness, but it's sins. So by his wounds you were healed refers to the healing of our souls, the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, Theodoret back in the fourth century said this, this is a new and strange method of healing. The doctor suffered the cost and the sick receive the healing. So his wound healed our wound. That's what he's saying. What a healer. And that's the ultimate healing we need. It's for the wound of our souls, our sin wound, to be healed by him. Now just a moment in verse 25, and then we'll close. Jesus finally died to be our shepherd. Because of his death, straying, perishing sheep can turn to Jesus as their guide and provider and keeper. And again, this is another reference back to Isaiah 53. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. So we were constantly going the wrong way, headed the wrong direction. I mean, that's the human condition. And Jesus died for us knowing all the time that we were wandering off like sinful, stupid Uh, straying lost sheep, oblivious to what he was doing, but he still died in our place. And he says, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. When he says you've returned, it doesn't mean that we were with Jesus and we left him and then we came back. You could better translate the word you've turned around. In other words, we were straying sheep and there's a point in our life when we turned around. We made a U-turn and we turned to Jesus Christ. And when we do that, He becomes the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. 
We did a series a few months ago on the 23rd Psalm and all that it means that the Lord's our shepherd. That he's also our guardian. That, in fact, that's a word, that word guardian. There are overseers, a word used for elders in the church. That we're the overseers or we're to watch over the church. And so he watches over us from heaven uh, to keep us from straying into sin. But all of this here is God's design and purpose for the cross. Jesus died as a standard for us to follow in his steps, a standard to imitate. We need to ask ourselves this morning, are we doing that? Uh, do we resemble Jesus, especially when we suffer mistreatment uh, in life? Are, are we willing to, to just keep on handing it over to him to take care of it? Jesus died as a sin bearer to pay the penalty of our sins. He's a sin bearer for us to trust. And Jesus died as a shepherd to bring us to green pastures. He's a shepherd to follow. And of course, the most important question here this morning is, have you accepted what Jesus Christ has done for you? Have you received that pardon that he purchased for you when, you died on the, when he died on the cross? There's a book I read several years ago by Erwin Lutzer called uh, How You Can Be Sure You'll Spend Eternity with God. And he tells this story in here, and I'll close with this this morning. He says, imagine a book entitled The Life and Times of Jesus Christ. It contains all the perfections of Christ, the works he did, his holy obedience, his purity, his right motives, a beautiful book indeed. Then imagine another book, The Life and Times of, and you put your name in there, so I'll do that this morning, The Life and Times of Mark Hitchcock. It contains all of my sins, immorality, broken promises, and betrayal of friends. It would contain sinful thoughts, mixed motives, and acts of disobedience. Finally, imagine Christ taking both books and stripping them of their covers. Then he takes the contents of his own book and slips it between the covers of my book. We pick up the book to examine it, and the title reads, The Life and Times of Mark Hitchcock. We open the book and turn the pages and find no sins listed. All that we see is a list of perfections, obedience, moral purity, and perfect love. This book is so beautiful to look at that even God adores it. Now, that's the beauty of the gospel. There's a book called The Life and Times of Jesus Christ and The Life and Times of Mark Hitchcock. And what God did at the cross is he took the covers off of those books and he switched them. Jesus took my sin and I get all of his righteousness. If you've never accepted Christ, that's what you need to do this morning. And the moment when you do that, God will take the cover off Jesus' book and he'll put it on your book. And he'll take the cover from your book and he'll put it on Jesus' book. And it may be that you're a believer here this morning and you've been carrying around a weight of sin, guilt from some sin you committed in the past and you can't get over it and it just haunts you day after day after day. Remember, the cover on Jesus' book is on your book now. That's how God sees you. And the cover on your book is on his book. Let it go today. Receive the forgiveness that God gives to us in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so we can become the righteousness of God in him. Accept Jesus Christ as your substitute if you've never done that. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that once for all perfect sacrifice that Jesus offered for us. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never received Jesus as their sin bearer and their substitute, that they'll do it right now where they sit. 
And Father, I pray for those here today, maybe who are carrying some weight of a sin long ago that haunts them day after day. They just wonder how they can ever come to heaven, how you can ever forgive them for what they've done. That they'd realize that the cover of Jesus' books on their life now is on their book. And God looks into that book, and it's a book that God adores. Father, all of us here bear burdens. We bear the burdens of unjust treatment. And Father, I know with every one of us here, there's somebody we may be thinking of here today that's done us wrong that we'd like to get back. So, Father, help us to keep entrusting. Every time the desire to retaliate and to threaten and to revile in return comes to our mind, just keep handing it over to you, the one who judges righteously. Father, we thank you that every day as we leave here this coming week, that we have you, the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. Oh, Father, thank you for Jesus. May his name be praised forever. Amen.